0: Be spending the next two weeks, kind of wrapping up this section in the book of Philippians, uh, and interestingly enough, we've been talking about this subject of of love. And so, uh, most of you know, especially if I've had direct kind of communication with you, that I did not grow up in a, a Christian home. I had what would be considered a relatively late, you know, coming to Jesus moment in my life. I was in my young twenties, and as a consequence of that, I, I, you know, becoming a pastor was not actually my. Number one in life that wasn't even on the radar for half of my life. But once I came to know Jesus, He had uh, He had put that in my heart. And so I had uh, several jobs prior to that, and uh, I want to share with you one that was an interesting one, one of my favorite ones. So, uh, several jobs over the years, but to me, one of the most interesting. Was, was butchering meat. I had this whole long-term plan. Uh, I, wanted to, I was actually pursuing a career in law enforcement. That's where I was trying to head in life. And I figured that if I could get a, uh, a, a job butchering meat, I wanted to move back home to the northeast, New York, to get into the uh, the butchering system there to make some money until I could get through the police department academies, and so uh, I had this whole plan to develop what I wanted to do with my future. And God ch- changed all that, but nonetheless, I want to share with you the this segment of my life when I started learning how to butcher meat. And so the the beauty of meat, it kind of it, it fit me. I I really enjoy cooking, and I I love the fact that butchering meat is as much an art as it is a science so if you ever go to the grocery store or a good butcher you will notice that there are literally an infinite amount of names and cuts of beef uh chicken and pork on display in the meat cakes. it's all coming from the same you know three animals basically but there's like four thousand different ways you can buy this stuff and because of this there's a pretty uh, steep training curve in becoming a butcher not just cutting the meat properly but learning like what you're cutting and the way you're cutting it. and so as uh as the, the way you get trained is typically under another butcher. It's like one of the most old school forms of discipleship there is. And so I sat under this guy one-on-one for a season to learn how to to cut meat. And I want to share with you a little bit about this guy. So for, for some reason, my bosses made me apprentice under a guy named Ed. And Ed was an interesting dude. He was as odd as he was likable at the time. This was back in the late 90s. Uh, he was 70. And he had all of these Idiosyncrasies that were just really, if you knew Ed, these are the things that came to your mind. So he would regularly brag about the fact that he had his Cadillac, like one of those big Cadillacs, you know, one of the ones that kind of you could you could pull up into the parking lot and come out of the trunk and be in the theater. It was so long, you know, just massively long, a boat like Cadillac. And not only did he brag about how big his Cadillac was, because it was an old one, he bragged about the fact that he had owned it for like 10 years and had only put like 10,000 miles on it. That was like one of his claims to fame. And he had this, I I am not making this up when I say this, he had one of those like 1920s gangster movie voices. I don't know if you've ever heard that in those old uh, black and whites. And when you compound all these things and how he treated me, it it made for a very humorous story. Um, He He would not he refused to call me by my name anthony in fact what he said was because i was an italian kid from brooklyn uh, with too much grease in my hair he started calling me wd-40 that's what his nickname was for me i'm not joking and so i am not kidding a training session with him would go like this he'd say listen here wd-40 you got to cut the beat like this you see left 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 right 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 and he would just rattle off all these terms and continually call me a bottle of grease and it was really annoying and so that's what training looked like under him and after a while it just got a little a little old right uh, and there was a bigger a bigger issue so not only was there the whole like you know abrasive derogatory thing but Uh, I wanted to learn how to cut meat healthily. And there was a greater concern that that kind of arose in the situation. And the biggest thing was is that one day while he was showing me how to work the bandsaw, which is this saw as big as me, you cut bone and stuff, I noticed that Ed was missing two fingers. And so here I've got a guy who is training me to cut meat, and he has lost half of the fingers on one of his hands. And I made all this known to my boss that it was getting a little old that I was training under a guy who refused to call me by my name. And frankly, I wanted a guy that had all his fingers. I felt like that was a better guy to learn from. And so uh, nonetheless, after, after kind of raising a stink for a while, they did pair me with another guy, and it worked out to be a little better. But I, I learned something interesting about that moment, about priorities in life, right? So here you've got this, this interesting thing where on one side of the fence, in the company I'm working for, they just want me to learn how to cut meat. Uh, that's their priority but in in my world I wanted to learn how to do it safely and I wanted to keep my dignity intact at at the end of it and so there's a priority structure that begins to come in here and priorities are important in life uh, because when you have them you will generally know what you want to do in life and so you can summarize the importance of priorities like this and there's certainly a very strong Kingdom application here if uh, you have clear priorities then it is very likely of course nothing is guaranteed in life but it is very likely that you will lead a life that is both fruitful and productive in whatever it is you are trying to do. If you have a life that is disconnected from priorities, then what tends to happen is you will, you will likely increase your chances to have a, a life that is not very fruitful and maybe even in some places could have some disastrous effects to it. So your priorities matter. How does this kind of connect to what we're talking about today? Well, today we're talking about our study in Philippians, about how loving others selflessly is one of the marks of a person who has been loved by Jesus. And so this section of scripture addresses a lot of very important things, but it really roots into this idea of healthy relationship. And that's why I think in the whole book, there's lots of great things we'll talk about, but this is one of those foundational teachings that shapes just about every area that we contact in life. In it, Paul teaches us, simply put, if you want to summarize the second chapter of Philippians, it would go something like this. Those who have experienced the selfless, sacrificial love of Jesus, which Paul describes in great detail in these verses, at some point and gradually over time, they should begin to display the same kind of selfless, sacrificial love to others. We've been made in the image of God. When we are redeemed in the image of God because of Jesus, relationship becomes one of the most important things we have in life. It begins with him, but it also lays a foundation for how we have joyful, lifelong relationships with others. And so this teaching, by implication, shows us that we have been built to be in relationships, meaningful relationships. We've talked about this earlier on. I'm not talking about uh, insignificant plastic-type relationships, but meaningful relationships. And because of this section of Scripture, each week we've been looking at a a particular characteristic or trait of God, what we call an, an attribute, frankly, in the theological world. And we've been applying how Who Jesus is has to begin making up who we are. And so last week we jumped into this idea of love. And today we will continue that talk by kind of defining what the number one love priority in our life should be. Last week we spent some time just talking about the definition of love. And how in our culture it's challenged. And how it can be very difficult for us to live and to love the way Jesus did. So we we got the big picture. But today I want to talk about the priority of love. Because if we're going to love others like Jesus loves us, we have to begin to develop a priority structure in our life. We will never get to this place in God's grace if we don't make it a priority to want to be in that place. And what's interesting about what we're going to talk about today, especially if you've been a Christian for some time, is that you will know, uh, you will have heard this verse. This is one of the the most famous verses in the New Testament. And what happens with this is, Uh, This this idea of knowledge, knowing, and doing, this is a great passage of scripture that shows us it is very possible in the Christian faith to know something about God, but to not necessarily be living our lives in light of it. And so this is one of those places where there has to be an equal sign in between these two thoughts. Who we are and who Jesus is has to shape who we are and what we do. So this is likely a priority that, that many of us will know, but the real challenge of today's talk is asking ourselves if we're actually living in light of it. and So my hope this morning is that you'll figure that out, that through this talk you'll spend some time addressing this matter in your own heart and letting God, through his Holy Spirit, speak to you through it. And so here it is. If you want to know what the number one priority is for, for loving others, it is a very simple one. The number one priority you have in any relationship, right? That's the command Jesus gives us, Paul gives us in Philippians. It's to have the same mindset that Jesus has with us in our relationships with others. If you want to love like Jesus did, the number one priority you have in any relationship is to love God above all else. You cannot love others like God loves you if you are not casting your heart, soul, and mind, your affections ultimately on God. That shapes the way you see and care for others. And I want to reread Matthew 22, 34 through 40, because it's a very important passage of Scripture in the Bible. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, this is another religious group during the day, much uh, similar to the Pharisees, but they had some differences in what they believed, but nonetheless, they were not necessarily friendly towards Jesus. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. They're like stacking up on each other to deal with him. And one of them says, this is an expert in the law, they tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's a pretty amazing statement. What he's saying there, we won't really touch this today, but everything that has been taught in the Old Testament at this point in history, he's saying everything, everything falls under these two categories. It's a pretty profound statement. So, we're going to look at the primary the driving impetus behind the the person who pursues and loves God. What our motive should be. So, last week we introduced this this love concept in general, but today I want to pack it in a greater detail. And the introduction came in the form of a warning. When we talked about selflessness in relationship, we said if we are pursuing a relationship in any form, no matter what it is, we have to be careful to avoid To not fall prey to might even be a better way to say it. The detrimental heart attitude that says love is more about getting some need met. Oftentimes it's physical or spiritual or emotional. Love is much more than just seeing other people that are put in your life to meet your needs. Rather, it is about meeting the needs of others. Those two things have to work hand in hand. Love has to be as important when we talk about how we care about people, not just what we expect them to be for us. And so we said that people who have this imbalanced type of life, they often believe that other people have been put in their lives to make them happy and to satisfy their deepest emotional needs. They, they view people as cosmic dispensers of, of happiness. And over time, what happens they might even, is they might even begin taking advantage of those people in their lives. And so to varying degrees... People start to attach this this Jesus-like or Messiah-like quality to other people and what they begin to expect from them in a relationship. They often expect them to be, you know, in the dating world, they're, they're number one, the person who completes them or brings them these incredibly deep uh, physical and, and spiritual needs. They, they meet them substantially in their life. Uh, and this is true even in the friendship circle. We get very aggravated with people when they don't live up to our standards, right? We, we expect that in life, whether it is romantic or... The nature of what we've been talking about here is is less about the romantic and more about peer relationships, how we treat other people who love God and how we treat people that do not love God. We start to expect things from them, sometimes in unhealthy ways. We look at them and we say, you're here to fill me up. You're here to give me meaning. You're here to give me value. You're here to provide me with security. Uh, I need to feel significant in life, and that's your job, right, to make me feel these things. And so in short, what happens is they start to expect things from other people that frankly only God says he can ultimately fulfill in our lives and so if we're not careful we start expecting them to be the ultimate source of strength in life the proverbial wind beneath our wings and I want to say this while these are certainly needs that can be met in part in any relationship like I'm not saying we don't have a responsibility to to care for people to value them to make them feel significant that's not the point of this what I am saying is that if we seek this Ultimately, from other people, if we seek to be fully satisfied by another person in life like that, it, it cannot happen. The, the weight of that burden was never assigned to another human. God owned that burden in Jesus and we live it out in pieces and particles with each other. And so this is kind of where the, the main challenge in our talk lies today. Because if you think about it, it is undeniable that every person has these needs. We have been wired this way. And scripture is pretty clear. We are created with them. Paul tells us we are to labor towards meeting these needs in other people. And Jesus is saying, look, the number one thing that you do in life is you love God so you can love others well. So we're not undermining the reality of this, this way that we've been wired. The, the challenge here is that we have to figure out how to, how to meet them in a healthy way. How do we find a balance so that we can contribute to others without them expecting from us what will break us? And how do we learn how to receive without expecting things from other people that will break them? So if you believe that another person is the the primary person in your life that is going to satisfy you, that is going to make you happy. If you think of that of a spouse or a brother or a sister or a pastor or a leader or an elder or somebody in your community group or your workplace, what's going to happen is it is going to be absolutely destructive for you as an individual and for your relationships corporately. You can never love others. Here's, here's where the challenge really comes into play. Is if you have that attitude with other people, you will never be able to love others selflessly like Jesus did for you. Because you will likely spend all of your days being more concerned about why you're not getting your own needs met from other people. And if that is left unchecked, that is a root of selfishness. And selfishness left unchecked often leads us to places where we will take advantage of other people. That is a really, really un-Jesus-like heart attitude. And it is all bound up in this love expectation. In Philippians, Paul teaches us, he says, love is this. In other words, he's saying God has loved the world so substantially that he sent his son to the earth, and he lived in these ways, selflessness being one of the main ones. He, he sets the healthy expectation for what love expectations are on the God side of the spectrum. Now we talk about it on the human side. And this love expectation... If we're not careful with it, it, it's problematic in any relationship, the unhealthy side of it. But I want to share with you that it is especially problematic in Christianity because it is a form of idolatry. I want to explain what I mean by that. When I say the word idol, especially if you have some kind of a church background, you're going to start thinking about all those stories in the Old Testament. You're going to start thinking about big bronze statues, right, of, of foreign gods in other lands. You're going to think about uh, Paul in the New Testament in the Areopagus when he's in Greece, and he's, he's looking at all these statues of other gods, and he's like, hey, guys, I want to tell you about this, this unknown god. This is the god you seek but do not yet know. Idols in our world typically refer to some kind of religious thing, or we've even talked about how they can be wrapped up in needs, right, in, in material items. There's no limit to what an idol can become. But if we're not careful to broaden the definition— then we can very easily miss the idols that are in our life. And so the Bible's clear that an idol, while it certainly can be a bronze statue, you know, in Canaan, it has a much broader definition. It is truly the action of taking any good thing that God gives us in life, and then we turn it into this ultimate thing. This is a statement I've made in this room before. We take a good thing God gives us in life, and then we make it an ultimate thing. It's when we pursue and expect something in this life to satisfy us, like God, in a way that only God can and so in this case, it's when we take God's good institution of relationship. This is a really good thing. He has said the world is bound up in relationships. And the healthier they are, the better our world will be, the better our lives will be. What happens is we take this really good gift that God has given us. Friends, husbands, wives, children, children uh, workplace, whatever the relationship is. He gives these, us these things to deepen our love for him and others, for the believer now. And the idol form of this is when we then take that good thing that he gives us and we use it to dethrone him. We then use it as a tool to replace him. So we make our relationships more important than him and we forget about God in the process. Or we make our jobs, you know, the, the pursuit of success or, or rearing children, whatever our thing is, we raise that to such a point in life that we forget about the God who gave us the gift in the first place. And that's what's so dangerous about this, this relational love expectation it seems so right on so many levels to expect this from another person. And to a certain degree, it is healthy. Good boundaries say we should set our lives up in a way to where we're not putting ourselves in situations to be you know, taken advantage of. However, there is a strong caveat connected to a statement like that. Because if you look at the life of Jesus, he constantly puts himself in, this, in situations where he is disadvantaging himself for the sake of others. So I'm not saying be unwise in the way we conduct ourselves with people. I'm not saying posture yourself to get taken advantage of. But I am saying the very reason we are in Jesus is because he let the world put him on a cross. And there is nobody in the relational world that would say that was a healthy thing to do. Yet the selfless drive of Jesus to please his father and to serve us creates a different attitude. And so we want to be careful to not feel that we we have to demand this from somebody else. Philippians is pretty clear that it's wrong on every level to just expect that before you care for somebody, they're going to be this for you. The nature of who Jesus is says he loves before he's even loved. And if you begin to peel back the layers of this this love idol, this expectation idol in relationship, if you actually use Jesus' gospel scalpel, then what happens is you will find that it's not just an idol. It's actually the mother of all idols. It is a violation of the first and greatest commandment, which tells us we should never love anything in this life or expect something to love us in this life in a way that only God can. Jesus says the greatest commandment is this. All the law and the prophets hang on this. And so that's why we're going to spend this time talking about this rude idol. When we violate those two things, we put ourselves on a trajectory to misunderstand who God is and the way that he cares for us, to, to mislove God, and then certainly to get to this place where... Uh, we, we start to treat people in ways that dishonor God and maybe even them. It's an idol that scripture regularly warns us if, if we lo- expect love from people in a way that they can't deliver. It will always promise us more than it can deliver. And so if you invite this expectation idol into the most meaningful relationships that you have, your, your friendships in Jesus... Those who are far from God, those who don't even love God, you know how you care for them, your family, your marriage, whatever it is, it is destined to taint the way you experience and show love to others because it creates a a growing tidal wave of failed expectations. And when we start to live in a world where expectations are failed, things like bitterness and hurt, uh, angry feelings, disappointment, this is the small way that turns into a tsunami and wrecks your heart. At some point, you just feel completely... Uh, invalidated in a relationship, and you are not going to be able to reciprocate love in a place where you feel like you're being taken advantage of. So let me give you some examples of this, some some explanation points. Uh, Some good examples of this would be when we, we fail to seek God to meet our deepest love needs in life. It looks like this. It means we, first and foremost, foundationally, we start to transfer those expectations to someone or something else. That's a need we have. So if if we're not getting it met from God, we're going to transfer that expectation to somebody else. And this burden is almost always heaviest on those people that are closest to us. And the result of this is over time, you get increasingly demanding with the people or that person or that thing, whatever it is. And then you start to condition yourself to expect them to meet your ultimate love needs and then constantly remind them every time they do not. So over time, you just turn the dial of that pressure up on a person. To the point where it can't be bore anymore. You cannot bear the weight of that. The next step is then you get hurt and you get angry. And you get tired of being wrong. Maybe even disillusioned with the relationship and life itself. So sadly what happens is in a passage like this in Philippians. And what Jesus tells us in Matthew. Is both of these texts tell us we've been made to have joy in relationship. And so when we function in a relationship like this. We put ourselves in a position to have our joy robbed through relationship. We start siphoning the fuel of our life, what keeps us happy and healthy. This is why we're warned to never let anything become an ultimate love priority in our lives above God. And this is going to be true to any relationship you have, no matter what relationship you find yourself in. For example, if you're single and pursuing friendship or marriage more than you are pursuing fulfillment in God, well, that's a form of idolatry. There isn't a bronze statue at the end of that, but you're seeking love And fulfillment, ultimate love and fulfillment, and something that God says you can never be satisfied in. If you're married and pursuing fulfillment from your spouse or your children more than God, that's a form of idolatry. Eventually, you place undue pressure on those people. If you continue down those paths, you're never going to find what you're looking for, and you will likely destroy or severely damage your existing relationships because of the pressure of that expectation. Nobody can live under that pressure for that long. You'll never love another person like Jesus loves you if you believe this way. It's a, it's a dual problem, both ways, in the giving and the receiving end. And so when we, we take this idea, this, this, this issue, the expectation issue, and you marry it to what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 22:37, what you see is that this is what Jesus is trying to help us see. He's trying to say, listen, stay away from this. And I want to share with you how you can stay away from this. He says, you have to turn your energies, the energies and the attention of your heart towards my Father. And so the backdrop of this passage, right, is that you get this expert in the law. There's kind of an irony here. This is a guy who knows the law very, very well. So this is a setup question. He doesn't need this question answered. He knows the answer to the question. But nonetheless, every time the the Sadducees or the Pharisees try to talk to Jesus, they are intentionally trying to trip him up. They're trying to get him to say something, to make a mistake. But that never happens. So they say to him, you know, uh, teacher, the, the lawyer essentially says, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds by giving him what we know today as, as the great commandment. And so this is a commandment rooted in relationship, or about, it's about relationship. And this truth, like Jesus himself, it has an ancient and eternal place in God's economy. The idea of relationship was around before we were, because it existed in God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So anytime we read about relationship in Scripture, this is God like giving us an insight to the way he wants the world to function, based on how he functions with his Son and the Spirit. And here Jesus quotes the most famous command in the Old Testament— that God gives to his people through Moses in Deuteronomy 6, 4-6. You, you biblical scholars will know this, or if you have had any connections with Judaism, you will know this passage of scripture as the Shema. It gets its name from the Hebrew verb, which in this passage communicates an instruction to listen or hear. So hear, O Israel, or listen, O Israel, what we're going to talk about now. Moses tells, God, tells God's people, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And essentially, they say, he says, listen. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he does this as they're about to enter the promised land. So this is like the summary place where there's a transition point in God's people. They have come from the wilderness. They are about to have a promise from God fulfilled. And in the middle of these two cosmic events in their lives, Moses says, remember, as you go and get the promise of God, as you receive it, do not forget to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Because it is so much easier to love the promises of God than it is to love God himself. That's what Moses says in the Old Testament. And when the, the New Testament people say, hey, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus doesn't give us another one. He says, listen, I'm going to tell you what the greatest command is. You already know it because Moses already said it. He reissues this in this passage. Why does he do this? Well, because the, the, the precedent hasn't changed. Jesus is trying to get us to see that the supreme example of Christian love, it's first seen in our desire to be deeply satisfied with God genuine love, and the way we show it to others, it always begins in our ability to be deeply satisfied with who God is. And then you can almost consider it this way. The overflow of our satisfaction in God, the overflow of us, of, of us dwelling in God's ultimate love and fulfillment, is what shapes how we love our neighbor, which is the second commandment. We'll get to that in a, in a moment. And he says it's just like the first. It's, it's like bone and marrow. They're literally inseparable. The way we love our neighbor which is just a synonym for everybody else in our life. The word neighbor, you know, there's, there's tons of relationships that, that dangle from that word. But whenever we read the word neighbor in the Bible, God is talking about how we deal with other people, whether that is a spouse, a brother or a sister, a sibling, a friend, or a literal neighbor. We are to love God first. And the second commandment is just like the first. We love that neighbor in the same way we're learning to love God. It's a synonym for the rest of the people in your life. And so ultimately Jesus dies for us, Yes, we always talk about Jesus loving us, and that is certainly true, absolutely true. But remember, this principle is when Jesus himself practices. Ultimately, Jesus dies for us because of his supreme love for his Father. It's the will of God for Jesus to die for us. And so somewhat poetically, we can say that, that the grace we know from Jesus, the love we experience from Jesus, is an overflow of the love and the adoration that he has for his Father in heaven. It is because of his care and affection to do the will of his Father that he does, he does our bidding. He goes to the cross for us. And we live now in this eternal love relationship with him. With him this, this great grace relationship. And so from Moses to Jesus, we see that the key to the Christian life, right? Lots of things come out of this. But the key to the Christian life is to learn to love God above all others. And to let that shape everything else we do in life. And it is this, this principle here that has a direct application to our earthly relationships. So the way we'll kind of start wrapping up this morning is by pointing out an idea and then lending some weight to it. I want to introduce this here and then we'll look at the second commandment more, uh, more solidly. When we talk about this application to our relationships, it's a, it, there's a pretty simple truth we can mine from it. Having a God-honoring relationship, which is the point of Philippians 2 and Matthew, having a God-honoring relationship never begins, it never begins by expecting something from another person. It begins by focusing on yourself and who you are in light of God. If you enter a relationship saying, what can you do for me? It's already sabotaged in the beginning. But if you enter a relationship saying, who am I God and how can I meet the needs of another? You're, you're likely to see a much healthier relationship develop. And if that is reciprocated, then you have the perfect formula for long-term healthy relationship. So having this, this, this structure in your life means that you have to begin uh, any relationship by running a love diagnostic on, on who you are you start the equation saying, how do I love? And Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 6, kind of rewinding the clock a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew. He tells us when when learning how to function in life, he says, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. And so what's happening here is in, in, in all things in life, what Jesus is saying is the starting point is not the thing in life. The starting point is our Father in heaven. And then the thing in life is what you begin to dwell on because you're going to have a better sense of objective clarity in how to treat the thing in life, whatever it is. This truth has to inform every area of our lives. But the challenge with this is that the human heart is not wired to believe this. The human heart is trained to do something very different. We traditionally as people, we seek fulfillment. We seek first the things in life and then we expect the, you know, God to be in total of them. What happens is, is we, we want to find joy and peace and hope and fulfillment in the things in life. Not necessarily in God. And what happens there is if you, if you seek fulfillment in God first, it changes the way you see all the things in your life. But if you seek fulfillment in the things in life, it dramatically changes the way you understand your God. And then when that happens, it leads you, you to this naive hope uh, that your circumstances, these things, that's what that means. These things, whatever they are, they will restore joy to your heart. And that is never the case. The best case scenario of a thing in your life, whatever it is, is that it will create some form of temporal fulfillment. And that behavior tends to look like this. It's when we believe that, for example, financial stability in life will will satisfy our souls. I'm not saying financial stability is bad. But if you ultimately look to financial stability for your ultimate joy and hope and peace in life, then you will not do well when the bank account is low or the stock market crashes or you lose your life, uh, your, your job. You will sense the reality that that is a shifty God to build your life upon. Or it's maybe you're having a really hard time in the relationship of your job right now, right? What is a job? For most of us, it is a connection point with a bunch of other people working for the same cause. It's when we're really disgruntled in the workplace and we feel like, you know, if we could just change jobs, well, then I'd be happy again. The truth is that that's probably not entirely true. You might go to another job that's even worse. So if we don't address the relational challenge in our own heart, if we're learning to love something more than God in our workplace we are likely going to carry that with us to the next thing we move our life to. Or it's when we believe that our friends or our spouses or our parents or our children or whatever it is, if they will just change, if, if that thing can just change, if you can just do this for me or be that for me, well then, then I'm going to be better. It's when we expect our hobbies or our accolades or our personal pleasures to ultimately satisfy in life, us in life. It's when we look to these things rather than God first in life, that we build our lives on a very, very, very unstable shifting sand. And what is funny about this is that it is one of the most obvious and clear ironies in the scripture. The human story from Genesis to Revelation is that it's this one lengthy narrative of people constantly turning to something else in life to expect it to fulfill them in a way that only God can it's a story of people filled with believing that they could just add one more thing to their life, the house, the car, the kid, the dog, whatever it is, the promotion, the next accomplishment, then then life will get better or ultimately will get better. When Jesus is always telling us, listen, none of those things are bad. You should seek these things in life. You should seek promotion and have more kids if you want to. All of these things are good, but if you make them more, more uh If you love them more than God, they're going to let you down. That's the story of Jesus. He is constantly teaching us that those great gifts from God, family, friends, marriage, uh, they will never meet our deepest needs in a way that God can. And this is why Jesus says there's only one person that can satisfy our emotional hunger like that. Only God can provide that relational security for us. And it is why he offers himself to you in Jesus. It's why you have to make him your first love. And you do this by first acknowledging who he is, by knowing that God is God, that Jesus is his son and that he has died, he loves you. And then perhaps the harder part of the walk of Jesus is continuing to put him first by making your highest love priority in life him. That is probably more what this sermon addresses. It's not the the confession of love for God, it's the fact of what it means to live in light of that truth for the rest of your days. So you listen to what he says in scripture. This is a way that you continue to love God first. You listen to what he says in the scripture and through the voice of his spirit. You make his voice the most important in your life. You obey his commands and you trust in his promises. You love others, not out of your own strength. That's a very limited well. But you love others out of the overflow of his love for you. In the same way that Jesus loves us, out of the overflow of his love for God, the same is true in our life. We love others out of the deep well of Jesus' love for us. We rely on his love and friendship. As our ultimate source of comfort and strength. And we serve his causes. We place every other issue in our life, every other thing under the authority of his kingdom. We, even the way we expect other people to treat us. Because if I say, how do I, Anthony, want people to treat me? Well, I have a very refined set of expectations. I can give them to you in email form if you would like them, right? But if I expect to honor Jesus and to love people the way he loves people, then I have to make that list. That list has to change. I can't expect people that are far from God to love me like God does. I can't even expect other people who love God to love me perfectly like Jesus does. And neither can any of you expect that from me. I can do my best, but I cannot ultimately fulfill that. It changes the way we see things. All of our lives fall under God's expectations. And what happens there is something very subtle over time. Over time, you begin to embrace and have the same selfless relational mindset that Jesus shows to you when you deal with other people. It shapes the second, of the, great, the second part of the great commandment. The way you love God shapes the way you deal with other people. And that dealing with other people statement leads me to the second relational truth I want to share with you this morning. So we know that the first truth is bound up in loving God. And then Jesus goes on to say, listen, if you, once you love God, you have to know that you don't even have an option to not love other people. The second commandment is just like the first. You got to love other people. So, if you want to have a healthy relationship, whatever it is with other people, then others must be your second highest priority in life. God is your number one, and others become your number two. And Jesus says this in Matthew 22, 39-40. And, connected to the first statement, and the second commandment is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So, when Paul says, love others like Jesus does, this is the way we do it. Now, Scripture's is clear here. The words of Jesus tell us the best way to love another person in your life is to make them the second most important person in your life. And I know the, you logic choppers out there will know, you logic heads, will say this is kind of inconsistent because we've been talking about putting others first in our lives. And that is true. But I want, you, I want to unpack the nature of this. So at first this might seem a little counterintuitive. Who's, you know, who's on first base kind of a thing? But in light of what we've been talking about, the nature of this command makes a lot of sense. We've already identified how making something else, whatever it is, a person, a place, or a thing, your number one in life, it starts to create unhealthy expectations on that person, that thing, or that place. It puts a burden on them that will crush them. That said, it's important to note that Jesus tells us the command to love your neighbor like uh, like you love God, to love other people, is very similar to the command to loving God. And so our teaching is dealing with how to have Christ-honoring relationships. And it's very important as we move forward that we we just identify the clear priority here. When we talk about relationships in life, you can boil them down. If you want to take the great commandment and put it into the common tongue, it sounds like this. In our lives, loving and serving God is the highest priority we have. And after that, everything else, our relationships, our social activities, our jobs, etc., they're all to be filtered through the lens of our love for God. They are a close second, but nonetheless, they have to go through that filter first. And so to explain this, I want to use a very tangible relationship. I want to talk for a few moments about the marital relationship as an example. Because uh, in a very tangible way, it shows us how this love-God-first teaching works in relationships. Because in it, think about this, if you know the, the biblical precedent for marriage, in it and after God, God calls husband to love wife and wife to love husband. The spouse is to be loved above all others. There is a love structure that comes into place. Our love for God is then poured out. You know, these these examples we have in Scripture between husband and wife about the, the dynamic love relationship they have. It's supposed to be an imperfect, but nonetheless a mirrored image of Jesus and his bride. So if you have been married for a while, and especially if you are young married, if you're thinking about getting married, I want you to kind of put your mind in this frame of reference for a few moments. If you've been married for a while or are young married especially, you know how hard this truth can be to live out in your marriage. Because when you are young married or newly married, it's very likely that you still have a bunch of single friends who start giving you grief in the early days about this priority shit. They don't understand that now that you're married, you can't do all the things you used to do when you were single. I'm not talking about being a stick in the mud, but I'm saying you, there's a different relational priority that begins to develop. And the obvious reason you can't act single anymore is because you made the choice to not be single anymore. You, you made the choice to get married, right? Like nobody, we don't have like uh, ordained marriages in our country. They're, it's a volitional decision between two people. So somebody at the point of marriage is saying, you know, I'm going to make a decision to begin loving you above all else. And So when you get married, much like the decision to love God, that's why God uses the marital relationship as a human expression of our love for him. What should happen is the relational priorities begin to change. In fact, I think it's fair to say they have to start changing. The goal of being married is that in a growing way, your marriage starts to take priority over everything else in life. And it is viewed to the lens of God's relational ideal for husband and wife. If if you're moving towards the road of Christian marriage, then you have to embrace the Christ-centered way of being married. That's what it means to be a, a believer and to be married like this. And so I'll give you a good example of this. I, I was married uh, in Florida, but my wife and I were living in New Orleans at the time. And so when we moved back, it was funny. I had a lot of really good friends that... They just got frustrated with me because, like, spending, you know, 2 a.m. Uh, nights at, at the, in the French Quarter at Café du Monde drinking coffee, these were no longer options for me. Like, I, I had a wife, and I could just be out all night, like, studying theology or talking or hanging out. And so they started getting angry, like, a little bit frustrated that I, you know, was making that a priority. And I just had to tell them, like, well, I don't know what else to do. Like, maybe this is why you guys are still single, because you just drink coffee at 2 in the morning every night. Like, should you go ask somebody out on a date? You know, maybe— Maybe we could do this together at 2 in the morning. But nonetheless, that's not what happened. And so we worked that out, but there was a, t- a tension there. Like I had to figure out how to let them know that by loving my wife first, it doesn't mean I don't love you. It just means things are changing a little bit, and we've got to re, you know, renegotiate this. So what happens there is you, you get this blurry line. And sometimes loving God first, it might seem like it's a command to, to not love somebody else but the point I want to make this morning is that when you love God first, you will love everybody else much better in your life. I loved them, but I had to change my priorities. And part of healthy relationship is they had to, they had to be okay with that. They had to recognize it was unhealthy to expect that from me at that point in life. And so over time, that priority lesson learned with single friends had to be applied to every area of the marriage relationship. And know this today, we still have a lot of single friends. Like it's not like we stopped hanging out with single people. It's just that the dynamic changes. And so if you're married now, let's just say you're not newly married or you've been married for a long time. I'm pushing almost 15 years now. You you know that the challenges of this they grow because the expectations of life get more serious. You know, when you have kids and they've got things going on and you've got bills to pay, it's no longer just a couple of grumpy friends that want you to drink coffee with them that are lobbying for your time. The demands become more serious. It's things like your employer now who's saying, you know what? You've got a real career, a future with us. And I'm going to start asking you to do things that are going to advance you in the workplace but they're probably going to hurt your family. You got to start they would never say it this way, but you have to start making those decisions. You know, all of these things lobby for our time. They lobby for our love. And if we're not careful if we if we get the scale out of order, we start breeding negligence in other areas of life. It's that old adage of robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? This is why loving God above all else must come first. Because God is the only person in our lives who perfectly and objectively, can speak into our lives in any of those situations. He is the only person that can help you objectively sense when you are going south. I'm not saying other godly people can't, but I'm saying at the end of the day, the only person who never makes a mistake and who has your best interest at heart above all else, even greater than we value ourselves, is God. He has the ability to help us sense. When a career, which is super important, we encourage vocation here. We feel like it's one of the ways we release God's people into the world. You are loving him in your workplace, right? But he can help you to sense when, when your job is actually becoming your first love. And when it is becoming your first love, all else will start to suffer. Let me give you another example of this. Um, with kids, this is where the line gets even blurrier. A really good example of this. I have three children now. Uh, it feels like I have nine most days, but I only have three. Um, a really good example of this type of challenge is is seen in married couples with kids. Uh, kids, if you have them, especially if they're small, they are the most needy of all relationships uh, you will have in life. I mean, frankly, there is a season where without you meeting their needs, they die. That's what happens. Like, they don't eat. They don't drink water. They would literally live on Twizzlers and Kool-Aid if you did not interject and let them know they need meat and milk. They are literally, their life is dependent on you for a season, right? A very lengthy season. And so what happens is it is very natural. I've talked about this relationship before to live very selflessly for our children in large part because you have to. But the point here is that as, as hard as this is going to be to swallow, the Bible is clear as deeply as we love our children. Most of us would jump in front of a bus for them. They don't come first They cannot come first. It's the same idea of of loving God first and and all others second. Because if you make kids your number one in life, you will subliminally make them a God in your life. What happens is you will start to live your life for them. And when you're living your life for your children, that's going to look dramatically different than living for your children in a way that honors Jesus Christ. When you live for God first, that shapes what you expect and want for your children. So what happens here is, You just have to know that God has better intentions for the people that you love in your life than you do. And I don't mean that you have bad intentions. I'm just saying God loves your kids more than you do. And God loves your neighbor more than you do. And if you've ever had a really rough week or season or year of life, you know that God even loves you more than you do in seasons of life. So loving God more than your kids or loving God uh, more than your wife it, uh, it doesn't mean that you don't love your wife deeply, or your husband deeply, or your children deeply, or your single buddies deeply. It just means that you've come to this epiphany in life where you know to truly love those people the way they need to be loved, you have to love them with the love of Christ, not your own love. And the only way you love with the love of Jesus is to experience the love of Jesus. And that's why the best thing you can do for a child, a spouse, a friend, a job, whatever it is, is to make God your greatest priority in it. And that neighbor, a second close. I'm not encouraging neighbor negligence. I'm encouraging loving God well and all else secondly. When you do that, you love out of the overflow of who Jesus is in you. And you'll find that boundaries get healthy. That advancing your career still happens, but you won't advance your career at the expense of losing other things that really matter in your life. You will start to have the right priorities in life. And you'll discern many things that oftentimes conquering the world is not worth losing the people you love in it. So if you hear anything today, let it be this. If you put any relationship in a position of priority over your relationship with God, it is very likely going to drift towards the unhealthy because you are functioning outside of God's design for relationship. scripture is super clear and simple for how this will work. If you pursue fulfillment in a relationship more than you pursue fulfillment in God, it will suffer because it will never reach the level of maturity God intends those relationships to have in your life. And here's why. Your relationship, no matter what form it takes, will be defined by two parties, driven by idealistic expectations of the way things, sh- you know, they want them to be. The expectation is, I think it should be like this, as opposed to having God's realistic and grace-filled understanding of way things should be shaped the relationship. Two different expectation structures. And unlike us, I'll say it again, God always will always be for what is best for us in our relationships at the whole. He will never bias himself one person over another. He will want and in a very powerful way can bring about what is best for two people no matter what the relationship looks like because even the most noble heart can drift into selfishness for their own sake. I shared uh, some teachings from Martin Luther a few weeks ago. I want to share uh, a teaching now from Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. Listen to this, this summary statement Jeremiah gives us about how we understand life and how God understands it. He says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. So give God the relational pole position in your life. That's what this is saying. Let him objectively and graciously guide your relationships. You you won't regret it. Know that even on our best days, sometimes we might be more subjective in the way we're loving than we even want to believe. And the reason loving God has to be our number one priority when we seek to love others is because he's the one who empowers a life of love. He's the only one that can quench the thirst of our souls and keep us filled up enough to live selflessly for the sake of others. When we make him our ultimate source of strength in life, then know that you have every spiritual resource, every good gift from heaven to help us experience realistic love and show it to others. So this morning I leave you as we begin to move into response time I leave you with with a closing question. And you'll have time to kind of meditate on this. Are you loving God first in your life? Are you living by the greatest commandment? Are you loving God with your heart, with your soul, and with your mind? Because when you're living in relationship that way, the way God intended it to be, you're gonna learn to love your neighbor the way Jesus did. I'm not just telling you to love others like Jesus did. I'm saying love others like Jesus did out of the overflow of the way Jesus loves you. That is the ultimate priority that we have in our lives. And when we love God first, it makes for long-term Christ-honoring relationships that truly bring joy to us. They bring a smile to our Father's face in heaven. This is what we're going to talk about next week. God wants us to be a pleasant aroma to him. And this is one of the primary ways we do that. It brings joy to those that we come in contact with. And so my prayer today is that the teaching of Paul and the command of Jesus would guide our hearts as we contemplate now who we are in Christ over these next moments in response.